And uh, the doctor looked at him. He could tell he was really perplexed. And uh, the man said, Doctor, you've got to help me. Please, please help me. And the doctor said, What do you want me to do? He said, Well, I need you to listen to my leg. And so the, uh, the doctor got his stethoscope out. And he put it on the, the man's thigh. And when he put, put it on the man's thigh, he heard a voice. He said, hey, man, I need $10 really bad. And the doctor never heard anything like that before, right? So he's, he stepped back, and, and the man said, well, if you think that's something, he said, you ought to listen to my knee. And so the doctor put the stethoscope on the man's knee. And sure enough, he heard another voice said, hey, man, I really need $5. I need it really, really bad. So the doctor pulled back the stethoscope, and he's like, What's up with this guy? And he says, you got to listen to my shin now. And so the doctor puts the stethoscope down on the man's shin. And this time he heard a voice that said, hey, man, I really need a dollar. I need it really, really bad. And the doctor stepped back and he said, let me go and consult with my colleagues and look over my journals and, and see what's going on. And so he, he disappears for a little while. He comes back in the room and the man and the man said, okay, doc, let me have it. Give me the verdict. And the doctor said, well, I've looked over all my journals of medicine. I've talked to my colleagues. He said, and in my expert opinion, your leg is broke in three places. <laughs> but I, but I, Sorry. I had to do that because today the message is a little bit heavy and it'll help the medicine go down a little bit easier. A little bit, even a corny joke uh, will, will do a, a heart good. Let's turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to get you to stand with me if you would. <clears throat> And we'll begin reading in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, or Pergamum, some of your Bibles may say, Write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with the two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. This is the word of the Lord, and I'm going to ask Preacher Larry Allen if he'll ask God's blessing upon the preaching of the word. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come before you. We thank you, Lord, for this special season of the year. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so let's go to the first slide here. And let's talk about, a little bit about the city of Pergamus, Pergamum. Now again, you can see on the, uh, the, uh, the left coast there, the island of Patmos, which is where John is writing the book. He, get, he receives the revelation of Jesus. And then you see the first stop on the way there is Ephesus. And then you go to the north, it's going to be Smyrna. We talked about them last week. And then we come further north, maybe about, I don't know, 40 miles or so, uh, to Pergamos, or Pergamum is probably the more accurate translation in the Greek. How many of you saw on the news this week, the earthquake in Turkey? We need to be praying for those folks. This is area, modern-day modern Turkey. And um, <clears throat> uh, it was called Asia Minor in those days. Now, just some interesting facts about Pergamos. Uh, they were famous for their, they had a library. They had 200,000 volumes, and it was um, only second to the, Ale the, the library in Alexandria, uh, Egypt, which was the biggest one in the world. And uh, 
the, uh, the, the head of the librarian, the head librarian there wanted um, to get the people from Alexandria to come to their library. And they, the Egyptians got so mad that they wouldn't send any papyrus to Pergamos, uh, which was the writing material. And so Pergamon became famous for developing parchment, which is uh, uh, animal skins. And so it, it really served in the preservation of what we have today in the Bible. Uh, it's an important uh, discovery there or, or invention. Pergamum and uh, parchment actually are, are very similar uh, in terms of definitions. Now, Pergamus was home to a lot of uh, temples to pagan gods, Dionysus and, um, and so forth. Zeus, there was a great big altar to Zeus and um, just n- a number of, of pagan gods. Uh, but they were probably most famous for the temple of Aesculapius. Anybody heard of Aesculapius? Maybe a few. We actually get the medical term scalpel from that, that term. But Aesculapius, he was the god of healing. And people would come from all over the world to the temple of Aesculapius. And here's how a person would receive healing. Now prepare to be grossed out. They had a temple. And in the temple it was filled with non-poisonous snakes. Absolutely filled with it. And the person that wanted to be healed, they would come to the temple of Aesculapius and they would spend the night there in the dark. And if the snakes touched you, supposedly you were healed of whatever disease that you would be, you know, uh, stricken with. Any of you like to go to the temple of Aesculapius? No? You'll just suffer with whatever you got going on, right? I'd rather die. I'm not worried about it. But... But anyway, so the symbol of Aesculapius became a serpent on a pole. And then you see adjacent to that there on the screen what has become kind of synonymous with the American Medical uh, Association or whatever. But it goes back, and also there's biblical roots to it too, right? Remember the brazen serpent in the wilderness with Moses. So, um, but the biggest threat really in Pergamos was not the, uh, the, the pagan temples, it was the, the, the imperial cult, people that worshipped the emperor. And, and so other cities in Asia Minor, they were in danger once a year when they'd have to offer up the pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. But for these guys, the threat was year-round because it was just such a big, uh, such a big deal. So I just wanted you to be aware of that as we studied that, that these guys... Uh, we're really in uh, the devil's backyard, so to speak. <clears throat> All right, so let's get back to Revelation 2 now. And he says, These things uh, saith he, I'm in verse 12, which has the sharp sword with two edges. So this already is an ominous note. And this, this harkens back to uh, chapter 1 and verse 16, the vision that John had. And we see him... Uh, having a sword in his mouth. Now, if you look um, in verse 16, Revelation 2, 16, you find out that this sword is a sword of judgment. And in Revelation 19, you read um, in verse 15 that Jesus Christ is coming to judge the world. And he comes with a sword to make war against the, uh, the devil and, and all those that oppose the, uh, the kingdom of God. So this is an ominous note here. Let's go to the next slide, if we could. <clears throat> now, what do we know about the two-edged sword in the Bible? It's a, uh, uh, synonymous with what? The, the Word, right? Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is quick, means it's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, if you spend time in the Word of God, not only will you read it, but it will read you. And we all know what that feels like. You ever been cut by the Word before? <laughs> oh, I certainly have. And, uh, but it's a, it has a healing property to it, too. It'll cut you, but it'll heal you uh, if, you'll, if you'll let it. Now, the sword is also a metaphor for capital punishment. Uh, in Romans 13, we read that the, uh, that the minister of God, that he does not bear the sword in vain. And so, uh, Jesus shows here that there's a higher authority than that of Caesar. You, know, you don't have to worry about Caesar putting you to death. There is a higher court. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. 
matters who's on the throne in heaven, right? God is in control. No matter what it looks like, God is in control. Always. All right. Now, verse 13, uh, he says, I know your works. But it's interesting here. He says, I know where you live or you dwell. Even where, now the King James says where Satan's uh, seat is. The word in the Greek is actually throne, where his throne is. That's interesting to me. First thing Jesus says to them is, I know where you live. I know how hard it is. You know, God knows your situation. You might say, well, nobody understands me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. God knows where you live. Now, it says here that they live where Satan lives. And you say, well, that sounds like me. The devil lives in my house, too. (laughs) Right? No. Listen, remember, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Some of y'all enjoyed that way too much. You're still... Uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Lori, why are you laughing? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I know where the devil lives. He sits in a black chair in my living room. <laughs> but the Bible says that Satan has a throne. Okay? Now, people wonder, was this the temple to, uh, uh, to Zeus? Is it the temple of Aesculapius? Or is it a literal throne? I don't know. But it seemed to be a, uh, a place where Satan was very active. And uh, he says, but even in that place, you can't wipe that smile off your face, Lord. <laughs> even in that place, he says, you did not deny my name. You held fast to me. Even in that place where Satan dwells. And uh, it's interesting that he, uh, he says, you hold fast my name. Let's go to the next slide, if we could. There's not that many of these today. <clears throat> Do you hold fast to the name of Jesus? I mean, you can talk about God all day long, but when you talk about Jesus, that's when people start getting nervous. And, and you'll even, I'll hear people on the television sometimes, and you can tell that they're cowering in fear because they'll say, Lord, we pray in your name. Because they don't want to say the name of Jesus because they know if they do, the FCC is going to cut the, pull the plug on them. But the name of Jesus is kind of the line of demarcation. And you can talk about everything in the world, but when you start talking about Jesus and his authority, people start getting upset. Because at the name of Jesus, demons tremble. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And, but he says, you hold fast to my name. Now he's commending this church for that. Praise God. They were holding fast to the name of Jesus, even... Uh, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse world. I want to tell you this. The world is getting darker and darker, folks, but we've got to hold on to Jesus Christ. We cannot deny Him. And the world is going to intimidate us. I believe as time goes on, if Jesus tarries, this country is going to get darker and darker. And there's going to be more and more opposition to Christianity. We already see it with the cancel culture that exists and all the woke nonsense that's, uh, that's taken over. The world, and it's only going to get worse, folks. And we have to stand firm on the name of Jesus and hold fast to his name. Jesus said, If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. But if you deny me, I'll deny you, is what he says. Now, uh, Antipas, nothing is written about him. And I found that fascinating. No book has anything about Antipas. But the more I meditated on that, the more I thought about how wonderful this is. Nobody knows who this guy is, but God knows who he is. And you may feel really insignificant in your life. You think, well, nobody knows my name. Nobody acknowledges what I do. Nobody sees what I'm doing and the sacrifices I make for the kingdom. But I want to tell you, my friend, God sees everything, and he is the one that really counts. You can have your name in all the record books, but I want to make sure my name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Now, Satan's not omnipresent. That means he's not at all places at once. He's a created being. All right, so now comes to our interactive portion of the Scripture reading. And uh, I'm going to get Adam and James involved this morning. All right, so that means I need two microphones. So, uh, Adam, if you'll go to Isaiah 14... Isaiah 14, 
And uh, James, if you'll go to Ezekiel 28, and I know you were reading there this morning, so you'll turn right to it. <laughs> right? That's where I was in my devotions this morning. <clears throat> and we're going to talk, you know, these are some snapshots, as it were, of Satan. And you can read along with them if you want to, uh, or you can just listen. But uh, Adam, if you'll read Isaiah 14 there and, and read 12 through 15. to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation on the far sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the most high. All right, thank you. Those I will statements. Satan says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be like God. All right, James, are you in Ezekiel yet? If you'll read 28, 11 through 19. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up my lamentations upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabres and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Hold that right there. Do you see that? Satan was created. The devil was a created being. That means he's not equal with Jesus. Jesus made him. He's the maker. He's the potter, as it were. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He's not uh, omniscient, all-knowing. He is a created being. He is not on equal footing with the Lord Jesus. Okay, all right. I'm sorry, James. I just wanted to... All right, if we'll go, keep on reading 14 through uh, 19. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, and thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee. O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of the brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before the kings, that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thy iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, I shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Amen to that. Looking forward to that day. But Satan was beautiful in the day that he was created. He was perfect, God says. He was created without physical defect or blemish. But his heart was lifted up with pride. And he's a, he's a genius, but here's the problem. It says in verse um, 17 that James just read, it says, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, and you have corrupted your wisdom. He's smart, but it's an evil genius. See, in his mind, he still thinks he can win. That's why people, whenever something bad happens in the natural, it's, it happens in the spirit first. So when somebody kills somebody, it's because the devil actually put it in their heart to do that, you see. And you ever, you ever watch these shows? I try not to watch them too much with Lori with me because I don't want her to get any ideas. But you watch those ID channels where somebody kills their spouse, you know. And, and let me just go ahead and tell you now, if you plan on getting rid of your mate, you're stupid because you're the first suspect they're going to look at 
They're coming to you first. And I shouldn't say stupid because some people teach their kids that that's, I'm sorry, parents, if I for saying that. It's, uh, we'll say dumb instead. Okay. If you think that you can get rid of your spouse, okay, and you're just going to live happily ever after and go to another town, think again, you are suspect numero uno, okay? And yet, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Satan convinces them. Just like robbing a bank, dude, you ain't going to get away with it. You're not. You're not going to get away. But people can, are convinced of it, right? Against all logic. It reminds me of that Doobie Brothers song, Brother Lynn. Uh, what a fool believes. Right? You like that too, Willie? I, I, that's some good old yacht rock there, for those of you who don't know. What a fool believes. Uh, no wise man is able to reason away, right? What he sees, what he believes what he sees, and, and nobody can reason with him. And that's the way Satan is. Even to this day, he still thinks he can get away with it. Satan still thinks that he can keep Jesus Christ from taking over the world. That's why he's going to try to kill the Jews in the tribulation period. His, his wisdom is corrupted. Now, he has a kingdom, the Bible says, and his kingdom is not divided. All right, let's get back to Revelation. And thank you guys for reading. I may call upon you again, so don't get too comfy. Um, all right, verse 14. Now comes the bad news. I have a few things against you. Uh-oh. Because you there, have there that hold. Now that word hold is the same word used earlier. They held fast to his name. But yet there's some who are holding on to false teaching. Does it matter what you believe? Oh yes, you better believe it does. And that pun was intentional there. You better believe that doctrine matters. What you believe about Jesus is the difference between heaven and hell. It really is. <clears throat> Let's go to the next slide. He says, you've got there some folks that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, that's probably not the right pronunciation of it. But for our purposes, let's just go with Balaam and Balak, okay? Just because it sounds real good with my southern accent. Balaam and Balak. Balaam, now the first thing you need to realize, if you haven't read the Old Testament, you don't have a clue who Balaam is. His story uh, is in the book of Numbers. And we're going to look at this Wednesday night. And I'm going to try to do a video for those that can't be here. But we'll, we'll talk about him more on Wednesday night. But just a brief summary of Balaam. You can read about his story, Numbers 22 through 25. <clears throat> he was a, uh, uh, a prophet of sorts. And King Balak was the king of Moab. And Balak was scared because the Israelites were about to invade. And there was mil probably close to two million of them by this time. And so he hires Balaam to curse Israel. And so there's a funny story. Uh, it's, it's comical. Because Balaam goes back and forth with a guy, and, and God tells him not to go. And then he begs to go anyway. It's, real, it's a real interesting, long story short, uh, Balaam's on his way to, to meet with Balak to curse Israel. And uh, his donkey starts talking to him. And the really funny thing is he starts talking back to the donkey. Like he's not even disarmed by that. You know, I'd be like, what? What kind of mushrooms have I been eating over here, you know? My don but he's not disarmed that the donkey's talking to him. He's talking back to the donkey. And it's really funny. The donkey's like, you know, I've been with you all this time. and So be careful how you treat your animals. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, but God meets the donkey and, the, and Balaam with a sword, okay? And the donkey's scared to death. The donkey just gets down and won't move. You, know, you, re you just read it. It's real interesting. The donkey's like, don't move. I'm not moving. And... Uh, and Balaam's like, get up, you know, fool. And he's, he's hitting him. And, and he said, if I had a sword right now, I'd kill you. And then the donkey turns around and says, why are you hitting me? <laughs> it's in the Bible. I promise it's in the Bible. I'm not making this up. I'm just wetting your appetite here. Look at it. And the donkey's like, why are you hitting me? I've been with you all this time. I ain't never acted like this before. And so, so anyway, that whole episode moves on. Well, Balaam finally gets to Balak. And it goes four times. He tries to put a curse on uh, Israel. And every time he opens up his mouth, a blessing comes out. You know why? Because you cannot curse what God has blessed. I'm not worried about somebody putting a curse on me. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. 
I am blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay? So you can't bless, you can't curse what God has blessed. I hope I said that right. Now it says that Balaam, uh, he taught Balak to cast a stumbling block in the King James. The Greek word is scandalon. It's a trap. It actually is the trigger on the trap. You know how you got your mouse trap and then you got the, the spring and then you got that little place where you put the cheese and they don't, they're smarter now. They don't eat the cheese, do they? If you put peanut butter, they will eat that peanut butter and, and just keep on going and, and breed and multiply, you know. But, and you'll have to call uh, Amanda to come out and, and she'll get rid of them for you. And she, she gets rid of snakes too. Did you know that? She, she's a snake handling. Uh, <laughs> she's one of them snake handlers. <laughs> I'm going to stop. She's turning three shades of red in Annie and Valentine's Day. All right. Balaam couldn't curse them, okay? So Balaam said, okay, I can't curse them, so let's find a way around this. And what he does is he teaches Balak, who's the king of Moab. Who, who do the Moabites descend from? Does anybody remember? Lot. The story of Lot and his incestuous relationship with his daughter. That's, that's the origin of Moab. Okay? So it's not surprising that they're a thorn in the side of, of, uh, of God's people. So uh, he teaches, he says, I can't curse them, but if you'll get the Moabite women to seduce the children of Israel, they'll commit fornication, which is sexual immorality, and, and they'll, be, they'll be tempted to worship idol gods. And sure enough, that's what happened. And so Satan, if he can't destroy the church from without, and he can't, by the way, because Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And even if you kill Christians, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Okay? So if you can't uh, beat them from without, the devil is content to do the next best thing, apply for membership in church. Okay? And that's what he does here. The strategies have not changed, folks. Uh, the devil doesn't have any new tricks, but guess what? He doesn't need any because we still fall for the same old stuff. There's no new thing under the sun. And so if we think that we can be tolerant of idolatry and sexual immorality and have the favor of God, we are terribly deceived. Now, everybody was up in arms about the Grammy Awards. I didn't watch the Grammy Awards. Uh, last week because they don't award people for the kind of music that I listen to. Uh, I listen to the stuff that I grew up with. And I used to make fun of people for that. You know, and I've become that guy now who listens to the music that he listened to when he was a teenager. And they say, you know you're getting old when they're playing your music in the grocery store. <laughs> and lo and behold, every time I go in the food line, I'm like, yep, they were right. <laughs> but man, the 80s were a good decade for music. They were, they were good. The best. But, but anyway, um, everybody's up in armor about the Grammys. You know, there was a man in a devil suit. He was in a, a red uh, whatever with horns and a pitchfork that he bought at Dollar General or wherever. And, and listen, the devil would be, he would love for you to believe that's what he looks like. Red, you know, red horns and pitchfork and all that. But I'm going to tell you, he doesn't look anything like that, folks. The Bible says he comes as an angel of light. Remember the Garden of Eden? The Bible says that the serpent... Now, he doesn't come to you as the dragon, usually. He'll come to you as the serpent. The dragon, we would, have, we would be armed, right? We would be on alert if we see the dragon. In the Garden of Eden, the Bible says in, in chapter 3 of Genesis, it says, now the serpent... And we find out in Revelation who that serpent is, right? Satan. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any other creature. You know? And when, Eve, when he comes to confront Eve, Eve does not say, Oh, my goodness, there's a snake! That's what you would say, right? That's what I would say. Right? Even a, even a black snake. I, don't, I know y'all don't mess with the black snakes. They're good. Okay, you come relocate them for me. You come, I, I don't have time for that foolishness. Ain't nobody got time for that. And I'll never get these people that want to bring them in church. You know, the thing that God cursed and you want to take it in the house of God and play around with it, you know. I'll tell you a funny snake handling story another time. We don't have time today. Uh, but anyway, when, when the serpent comes to Eve, she's not the least bit dis, uh, at arms, is she? She just talks to him. You know what? If you start talking to the devil and start listening to him, it won't be long. He's going to tell you nine, lie, nine truths to get you to believe one lie, 
And that one lie will be just enough to destroy you. Right? Just, he'll tell you a hundred truths and get you to believe one lie so he can take your soul to hell. Oh, you're a good person. You got nothing to worry about. All this stuff about church and the devil, you don't need to worry about that. You just live your life. Or hear the biggest lie ever, you've got more time. You can get saved tomorrow. You can get saved next week. Have fun while you're young. When you're old, you can make a profession of faith. And all that is, gain, is, is aimed at destroying you. The enemy does not come but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Okay? Idolatry and immorality are going to bring the judgment of God to this church, Pergamum. And it'll come to any church that denies God's standards about uh, allegiance to God and sexual immorality. Now, what is immorality? Fornication. It's anything outside of marriage. And the Bible says that marriage is honorable in all, Hebrews 13, 4. And the bed is undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Plain and simple. What is fornication? It's anything outside of marriage. Now that begs the question, what is marriage? Well, Jesus tells you what marriage is. In the beginning, there was one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And the two of them shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's it. One man... One woman, for a lifetime, anything else in the realm of sexuality is fornication. I didn't say it, God did. And we've got denominations now. I'm not talking about churches. We've got denominations now that say, well, God affirms same-sex marriage. And God affirms all this, that, and, and, and the other. Listen to me. The sword is coming to that church. It may not be today, it may not come tomorrow, but it's coming. The sword is coming to that church because they have decided that they want to tolerate, they want to be woke, which is the dumbest term. I hate that term, woke. I do. Because really they're in a spirit of slumber. They're in a stupor. They're believing all the lies that the devil's telling them. That everything is okay, you know. And, and God is love. He's a loving God. And, I, and I, I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with this. Everybody's excited about the Super Bowl today. There's going to be a couple commercials about Jesus. And it, He Gets Us campaign. And you've heard me mention this before. You go on their website, there ain't no way to find out how to be saved by this He Gets Us movement. They're all focusing on the humanity of Jesus. Oh, Jesus was, was a refugee. Jesus was raised by a single mother. Jesus, uh, he had family. Jesus hated politics. All of that stuff may, may or may not be true, but it's irrelevant. Jesus is important because he's God. He's important because he's the only way to get to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You say, well, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? You see, because every religion's got some form of Jesus, my friend. The Muslims got a belief about Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses have beliefs about Jesus. The Mormons have beliefs about Jesus. Do you believe in the biblical Jesus? The Son of God who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross, who rose again the third day. I'm not talking about some hippie woke Jesus. I'm talking about the Son of God that if you were to see him right now, you'd fall on your face like a dead man. And you wouldn't be saying, oh, he gets me, we're cool. Jesus is my homeboy. No, you say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. All right, that's all I'm going to say on that. Okay. But understand that if we compromise with the world, and it's so easy to do, isn't it? Everybody else is doing it. Must be okay. I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want them to brand me as a fanatic. Well, folks, just go ahead and brand me. Go ahead. I don't mind being a fool for Christ's sake. Now, verse 15, he says, So have you there them also who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And I told you last time when we talked about the Ephesians that we would table our discussion on the Nicolaitans. Remember that? And I said we'd talk about it a little more. So let's go to the next slide now. 
Who were the Nicolaitans? Well, history doesn't say a whole lot about them, I'll be honest with you. There's a whole lot of conjecture as to who they were and what they believed and, and so forth. But I think there's a clue here. In the NASB, which I think is probably the closest to the Greek language translated, um, translates it this way. So you have some who in the same way hold to the doctrine of the uh, teaching of the Nicolaitans. The same as what? Balaam's doctrine. Okay. Now, it's not identical, of course, but it's similar. So whatever the, the Nicolaitans believed, it was similar to what the Balaamites believed, which was what? Idolatry and immorality are okay. I'm okay, you're okay, sloppy agape, right? Um, <clears throat> so there, there is some evidence from the, ancient, the early church fathers that there was a group that followed, you remember Nicholas of Antioch, he was one of the seven chosen in Acts chapter 6. We call them the first deacons or whatever. There are some church fathers, Hippolytus and uh, Irenaeus, that said that there was a group that followed him and they perverted his teaching. And they turned the grace of God into a license to sin. We talked about that Wednesday night. Romans 6, Paul's been talking about the grace of God. He says, what then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? And what does he say to that? God forbid. Perish the thought. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer uh, therein? Now, now, some see here the doctrine of the Catholic Church because the word uh, nikos means to conquer, or nikao means to conquer, and laos or laity is the people. And so they see here uh, uh, the Catholic Church where the priest dominates the laity. I think that's reading too much into it there. And there's also really no evidence in the first century church of them dealing with that. That comes later. But, uh, but I will say this, you don't need to go to a priest to have access to God because you have one, there's one mediator between God and man, and it is Christ Jesus, the Lord. It's not a priest, it's not an angel, and it's not the pastor. Okay? Now, I'm happy to pray for you anytime, any day, uh, but you don't, if you can't get a hold of me, you can get a hold of God, which is much better, right? You can get a hold of God, and He, he will hear you, and your Father knows what you have need of uh, even before you ask. Now, what about the Nicolaitans here? Remember in the church at Ephesus, back up in chapter 2 to, uh, to verse 6, and he commends them there, Revelation 2, verse 6, to the church at Ephesus. He says, but you have this, that you hate the deeds. Notice it's the deeds of the Nicolaitans here, but in, it's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in, in Pergamos. And what does Jesus say about that? How does he feel about it? He hates it. Goodness. Well, I thought God is love. Yeah, He is love. But He hates sin. And, and see, that's where people are, are, are so afoul. They've run so far afoul because they say God is love and love is love is love is love is love is love is love. No, there are some things that God hates. And if you hold fast to the stuff that God hates, guess what? The sword's coming for you. That's what he says. It's amazing how Jesus, uh, he, he, con he contradicts a lot of people's uh, imagination of who he is, right? That's why I say you need to believe in the biblical Jesus, not in the one that, that society has created or the one that we've created in our own minds, right? What, what saith the word, of the, God, the word of God? That's what matters. <clears throat> so um, more than likely, and I'll say this too, the deeds became the doctrine. If you tolerate the stuff long enough, eventually it'll creep into the theology. You see, I see guys now, preachers that I used to admire, now they're preaching this woke stuff. You know why? Because it's become popular, because they don't want to lose the crowd, and the motivation is the same as it was with Balaam. They don't want to lose the money and the followers. We don't want to offend anybody. Well, what about offending God? Paul said, if I please men, I can't be the servant of Christ. I can't serve two masters. If I'm the friend of the world, I am the enemy of God. He says, love not the world. Jude warned about this. He says, and I put this up here from the New Living Translation. It says, they have denied our Lord and Master. They have wormed their way into your churches. You see that? That's how the devil does things. Teaching that God's grace allows us to live immoral lives. How does God feel about it? He hates it. 
Verse 16, Revelation 2. We'll go to the next slide. We're almost done. Repent. What's the next two words? Or else. And who's just talking? Jesus. What does it mean to repent? It means to change your mind. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop thinking the way you're thinking. And get on the right path. It's as simple as that. You say, well, Henry, I can't believe you're, you're being so hard on the woke people today. Listen, God loves woke people, but he hates wokeness. And what God says to the woke church is, hey, repent. He's not just leaving you here bleeding on the cutting room floor. God says change. And if you change, you won't be judged. That's amazing, isn't it? God says, look, you want to avoid judgment? I want you to avoid it too. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. I really believe that. I don't believe that God wants anybody to go to hell. Otherwise, he would have never sent his son. I mean, think about it, guys. The son, yeah, the son is the most precious jewel of heaven. He is God's beloved one and only son. If God wanted people to go to hell, why send Jesus? Just leave us in our misery. But he's just like they were singing about this morning. The love that Christ has for us. He, he loves, we can't even fathom that kind of love. But we have to repent. And if we don't repent, there will be a judgment. Jesus said, I will, notice he says, I will come to you and I will fight against them. You notice the change in pronouns? I'm not going to make any jokes about pronouns here. He says, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to judge them and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's coming to judge. Now the interesting parallel here is that Balaam, he was confronted with the sword of the Lord. Or actually his donkey was. But he didn't learn his lesson, did he? And then ultimately we read in Numbers 31, guess who got killed with the sword? Balaam. Do you think that's a coincidence? No. The imagery is clear here. Those who hold the doctrine of the... Christ comes with a two-edged sword, right? Which is the Word of God. He comes with the Word of God. And he says, there's a problem in your church with doctrine. The Ephesian church didn't have any doctrinal problems. Praise God. They were an orthodox church. They were just cold. They had left their first love. But this church is still holding fast. See, that's the paradox of it. They're still holding fast to the name of Jesus, right? We're still Christians. But now we've become more relevant, you know, because we don't want to offend anybody. And after all, God's a God of love, and love is love is love is love, and so let's just all tolerate everything. And as long as we say we're Christians, I mean, after all, God so loved the world, He sent Jesus, we're still holding on to the name. So we're okay, right? No. If you hold to the doctrine of Balaam, and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, whatever flavor that is, of the Balaamite error, you're going to face the sword. And Balaam's judgment was swift, wasn't it? He died by the sword. Now, look at verse 17. We get to the promise of the overcomer. To him who overcomes. <clears throat> Who's the overcomer? Believers in Jesus Christ, 1 John 5. You can read, read, get the answer to that. Let's go to the next slide. There's only one more after this, guys. He that had him here, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the... Notice it says churches, plural, in verse 17. So every church gets to hear what's going on at the other churches. I guess on the one hand, that must have been interesting. And on the other hand, maybe frightening to find out. The last church, they found out they were going to be killed, right? So this church now finds out that, that they're facing judgment. But to him who overcomes, he says, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now again, if you've never read the Old Testament... You don't know what manna is. Anybody remember what the manna is? This is the food in the desert, right? And, 
And do you know what the name manna means? It means what is it? <laughs> Not what it is. <laughs> but what is it? That's you think God doesn't have a sense of humor? Manna, it means what is it? Because that's what they were saying. What is this stuff? And they complained about it for 40 years. You know, how many of y'all like eating the same thing every day? Come on, don't be too hard on them. Right? Y'all like it? I had a, a guy I worked with one, one summer, and that rascal ate a can of tuna every day for lunch. And he didn't put it in the refrigerator either. He'd eat it at room temperature. And it just made me sick, you know. But he... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Obviously, I'm not as discerning with my diet, you know. Don't, don't make any comments from the peanut gallery. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't enjoy eating the same thing every day. And, and think about it. They had eaten, they're eating this, and, and they're probably thinking of different ways to eat the manna, you know. Let's, let's make banana pudding, right? That's right. Manicotti. I mean... You know they're getting creative with it, right? But, but this is the hidden manna. God told, told the Israelites to put, a, put some manna in a jar and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant. You ever read about that in the Old Testament? We're not talking about the manna that fell to the ground here. There, there was some manna that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant represents what? The presence of God, right? And who could go in there? Only the high priest one time a year. And I promise you, he wasn't in there being like, oh man, this is cool, look at the manna. He's like, you know. But Jesus said, to them, who, him who overcomes, I will give of the hidden manna. I'm going to give you, now, uh, the psalmist calls that angel's food. I've got it up on the PowerPoint here. Is that Psalm 78? It says that he rained down the bread of heaven, that manna. Now, in John chapter 6, Jesus explains the whole manna episode. He feeds the 5,000. You read that. There are 5,000 men, so who knows how many women and children. So, you know, if you read your Bible, they'll say the feeding of the 5,000. It probably should say the feeding of the 20,000, but, you know, whatever. So anyway, Jesus feeds the multitude with just a few loaves and fishes, right? And, and they're ready to make him a king because they think, well, gosh, this guy's a bread factory. You know, we, he can churn this out for us every day, and, and, and this will be great. And Jesus says, you don't understand, guys. The manna, and they start talking about Moses. They said, Moses gave us manna to eat in the wilderness. And Jesus said, Moses didn't give you that manna. The Father did. He says, but I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. If a man eats, he'll never hunger again. If he drinks of my blood, he'll never thirst again. He's not talking about cannibalism, but if he, if he drinks of me, eternal life, he will satisfy the very longing of the soul. So the manna was a picture of Christ. That's why he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And Jesus said, I'll give you the hidden manna. Now here's the cool thing. Uh, and if, if you don't know anything about the background of Pergamum, you can't really appreciate this. But listen, they live in a society where there's temples to every god, the pantheon of gods, Escalapius and Dionysius and, who, and whoever, Athena and, uh, and Zeus and Escalapius so forth. And so you got all these different groups and they had their, uh, their rituals and their rites and, uh, and their membership and their guilds and their cliques. And if you did not operate within those cliques or those guilds, you couldn't practice. Uh, you couldn't do trade. Cancel culture is not anything new, folks. It's, it's been going on forever. They would cancel you if you didn't worship the emperor. They would cancel. They wouldn't do business with you. You know, if you refuse to do pagan practices. And so these guys have been excluded from society. They're out on the margins, but Jesus says you're a member of a special club. It's not a social club. I shouldn't even call it a club. You're a member of a special fellowship. You're a part of something that they'll never be able to take part in. And I'm going to give you something that's far better than you could get by worshiping Caesar. I'm going to give you the hidden manna. If you overcome. But there's something else. And we'll go to the last slide here. <clears throat> last slide. Thank you. He said, I'm going to give you a white stone to the overcomer. 
I'm going to give you a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, except the one who receives it. And if you read the commentaries, there's a million ideas about what the white stone represents. I'll give you just a few. In antiquity, um, when a jury would convene and they would meet to, to determine the, uh, whether someone was guilty or not guilty, they would put stones in a bag. If they put a black stone in the bag, it meant guilty. If, it, if they put a white stone uh, in the bag, it meant it was not, that they were not guilty. They were acquitted. And, um, and so some see this as a symbol meaning that, that the believer who, who overcomes will not be guilty. Okay. Another tradition says that a white stone was given to a victor in the games. It was given like as a trophy of, of sorts. And in that stone was his name written. And when he would go to a special, he would be invited to special feasts, um, uh, various events. And what they would do, they would display that stone with their name on it. And it would be kind of like an RSVP, kind of like a, an invitation. And if you could show that stone, it would grant you entrance uh, into, the, into the venue. Some see here a reference to the high priest who had the, the stones in his breastplate with the names of the, uh, the 12 tribes and, and so forth. Honestly, I don't know. We, we couldn't say for sure. But here, here's something that I get out of this, okay? <clears throat> I see this as a really uh, a, a, a personal note. I see that Jesus is really speaking of the personal relationship that he has with the believer, you know. The world may not know who they are. The world doesn't care who they are. The world thinks they're the scum of the earth. They're being excluded from all the, the trade guilds. They're being uh, canceled by the cancel culture of the day. Some of them are even being martyred, no doubt, or thrown into prison. But Jesus says, the world may not know who you are, but I know exactly who you are. Every hair on your head is numbered. I know, you're, I know you by name. I love that. And the Bible says he's going to give us a new name that no man knows except we who receive it. And, 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 and isn't that appropriate? Because the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Praise God. I'm a new creation. So it's only natural that I would have a new name that God would give me. You know, God's doesn't, he, he's in the renaming business. You remember Abram? Abram, God says, I'm going to change your name. Abram means exalted father. But here's this man with no kids. And God says, I don't want to call you Abram. Your name is Abraham. Some theologians have uh, postured that God took an H out of his own name and gave it to Abraham. Uh, you've heard of the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-V-H. There's two H's, yod heh lav in Hebrew. That one he, which is a breath sound, that he gave one to Abraham, and he gave one to Sarah. She was Sarai, but she became Sarah, with an H on the end. And God gives Abraham and Sarah a new name. And God wrestles all night long with a man named Jacob, Yaakov in Hebrew. His name means heel catcher. And all night long, Jacob wrestles with the angel. And God finally gets him into a place of submission. Not because it was hard for him, because he was getting all this junk out of Jacob. He said, who are you? Who are you? And he said, I'm Yaakov. I'm a heel catcher. And God says, you're not Yaakov anymore. Your name is Israel, for you are a prince with God. You have prevailed. Simon, what about Simon? This is the last one. What about Simon? Jesus sees Simon. <laughs> I can only imagine the first time he laid eyes on Simon. Being God as he is in the flesh, knowing everything that would happen with Peter. Knowing that Peter would one day deny him, but he loved him anyway. He was going to see him through. A detour does not mean you're done for. People make mistakes. People sin. God can forgive sin and give you a second and a third chance. He looks at Simon. <laughs> And he says, who do men say that I am? He's there at Caesarea Philippi. 
Who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. But who do you say that I am? <laughs> and Simon pipes up. Usually Simon's got foot and mouth disease, right? He's always trying to get his foot out of his mouth. He's like, I can relate to that, man. Usually Simon's saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. But this time Simon pipes up. He says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father who's in heaven. Oh, and I'm going to go ahead and give you a new name because you're hearing from God. You're not Simon anymore. You are Petros. You're Peter. Stone or rock. To him who overcomes, Christ says, I'll give you a new name and nobody will know it but the one who receives it. And there will be intimacy on a level that you have never known. I, I want to tell you what. I know we love our families. We love our children. And we love our spouses. And we endeavor to know the most we can to be understanding. But there is someone who knows you better than you know yourself. You say, well, that's a scary thought. It would be if it were anybody but Jesus. But Jesus knows everything about you. And he loves you. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for a bunch of good people. There ain't none. Jesus didn't die for a bunch of good people. Jesus died for the ungodly. And by ungodly, I don't mean people who sin differently than I do. You know, Because we like to look at the big sins, right? What about that mess on the inside that people can't see? We get the outside of the cup clean, but sometimes inside it's full of pride, it's full of envy, it's full of jealousy, it's, it's full of idolatry and covetousness and hatred and adultery. You know you can commit adultery in your heart even if you don't sleep in anybody else's bed ever. You can do it in your heart and in your mind. You may not ever bow down to a, an idol of wood or stone or silver or brass, but you can have idols in your heart. That idol is anything that you love more than God. Anything. And if you think for a moment that Satan is not going to try to put an idol in your life, you're sorely deceived. Why does he do it? Because he knows he cannot destroy the church from the outside. He knows. He's read the Bible. The devil knows the Bible better than you do. But he's warped in his brain. He knows that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. He knows that no matter what he does, there's a limit. God's got Satan on a leash, folks. He, he does. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Only. And so Satan knows this. He knows he's got a leash. He knows there are limits to what he can do. He knows that he cannot curse what God has blessed. So what is he going to do? The same old junk he's been doing ever since our buddy Balaam back in Numbers. If I can get God's people to compromise... If I can get them to be tolerant of sin, if I can get them to embrace idolatry in the name of ecumenical progress, progressive Christianity, which is really satan satanic activity, is all it is. It's old. People say, well, it's new age. It's not new. It's as old as Babylon. It's as old as the Tower of Babel. And Satan says, if I can get them to believe that, if I can get him to embrace the idea that, you know what, I can have a little bit of Jesus and I have a whole lot of the world and be okay. If he can do that, he knows that he can attack because God is holy and God has to judge sin. All right, would you stand this morning? You say, Henry, you've been preaching hard this morning. You know why? Because I don't want to be like Balaam. I don't want God to come to me with a sharp two-edged sword, right? I don't want him to come to you. With a two-edged sword. And judgment to be swift. You may be here today. And you're apart from God altogether. You've never been saved. You've never made a profession of faith. You've not, you've not been born again. God loves you. Jesus died for you. He died on the cross. He was buried. And he rose again the third day. And you can be born again if you believe and put your trust in him. You don't have to join the church. You don't have to go through any rituals.
You don't even have to walk the aisle, though I think it's appropriate. Jesus died on a cross for the whole world to see. Why can't we stand up for him? But you don't even have to walk the aisle. There's, that's nowhere in the Bible. But if you will put your faith and your trust and your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I repent. I repent. Have mercy on me. And Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But maybe, just maybe, the far more relevant, far more urgent appeal here is to the believers here who have been seduced by the, the theology of the world. Satan's a very religious fellow. And he has doctrines. The Bible says there's doctrines of demons. And maybe you've been listening to all the voices around you. They say, well, you know what, all this stuff about judgment and sin and, and sexual immorality, I just don't buy into that. This altar is a place of repentance. Not only for actions, folks, but for attitudes and mindset. Are you being tolerant of sin in your heart? It's easy for me to tolerate my own sin, isn't it? I can be so intolerant of other people's. Well, what about my own sin? Maybe the Holy Spirit right now, as we stand here, has been dealing with your heart about it's just something. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's negativity. Maybe it's complaining. Maybe it's unthankfulness. I don't know. But whatever it is, God's word to you is the same word to the church at Pergamos. If you will repent, you will be an overcomer. You can have a hidden manna, and you can have a white stone with your name written on it, a new name, that nobody knows but you and the Lord Jesus. Would you come?